Okay, guys, welcome to Dice in My History, episode two. I'm joined tonight by Mr. Ian Crew, who's fresh off the battlefield in their recent and very successful, from what I've heard, English Civil War campaign day. Hello, Ian. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. So, Ian, we're just going to kick things off. Episode one, a few weeks back, we covered uh, the sort of structure of the campaign day and how it really was taking a, a whole new fresh look at historical games uh, and as an entry point for new and existing gamers. Ian, uh, take us through the actual start of the day. So I believe the structure of the day was an introductory mission for all of the 16 players. And they were fighting as doubles teams, which I think is fantastic. Uh, so take us through that first mission, Tally Ho, the, the first mission of the day. All right, so, so on the first mission of the day, we wanted to make sure that nobody was left out, nothing was really on the line, and everybody could get involved. So what we, what we thought to do was, as it was a doubles, and to kind of twist the, not twist the narrative, but kind of make it narrative, the two armies kind of bump into each other, even though they're allies, they're not necessarily gelled as allies yet, and they're both heading to the same muster zone for the king, or the Lord Commander. So they bump, if you can imagine, a six by four table, horizontal with the six foot length, horizontal. And so the, both sides, this is the interesting part, both sides actually begin in the same corner on the short edge. And they actually cross like a St. Andrew's cross, like the Scottish flag, in the middle to get to their exit point, which is the actual muster. Um, yeah, so essentially the, the guys really are, as teams, they're actually fighting. This initial mission is a fight to get to their Grand Army's muster. Um, yep, and I think we exactly. sort of discussed it from a narrative point of view. You were, you were talking about maybe this grand sort of battle taking place in and around the border region of Scotland, which is where you're from. That's right. I think it's fantastic. So the mission itself, in terms of the actual play on the day, Ian, did it, did it work well? Did the mission work? I know you guys spent a lot of time play testing uh, most of the missions, all of the missions. How did it actually work? Did the guys enjoy it? Sort of give us a, an overview. Of <laughs> Everybody really enjoyed it. Some teams, um, well, some pairings, decided to just have a massive fight, not leave from the table, and then just try and whack everybody out to prevent them from doing so. Because obviously, well, as we play tested it through, we realised that it was going to be, because everybody had not needed to cross in the middle, it was going to be a really, really low scoring. So it's a secondary kind of win parameter. Whoever kills the most wins. And some folk decided, well, it ain't brought very much fast stuff, so I'm just gonna gun you off. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna smash you to death. So they did that. Other folk just kinda got kinda embroiled in battles and then it all just it, things just people just kind of uh, brought their own narrative spin, shall I say, <laughs> to the kind of uh, to the proceedings. And it, it worked really well. I mean it was People were kind of getting a bit excited, saying, what's happening? Are, are my troops going to survive to the next game? Yes, everything survived. Just bring it back on the table in the next round, and it just comes back on. 
relax, everybody learn. And, and it was great. Everybody learned the rules that rolled over to the next missions. Everybody was chilled. Everybody, everybody, everybody who got anything off got a gold coin which their team could accrue to buy new units next, uh, well, in the grand battle. So you just need to get something through the wee triangle, have a giggle, relax, learn the rules. And people seem to do that. It seemed to be really, it seemed to work really well. I mean, there was folk that, that never played a war game in their life that seemed to think it was fine. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. I suppose now that you've mentioned it, Ian, you've touched on this concept of gold coins, which is really an add-on to the Mersey and Lek Pikeman's Lament system, where having read the pack and discussed it with you, really you you had come up with this idea of not just accruing honour across the day, but accruing this concept of a gold coin. Can you give us a rundown for our listeners? What was the gold coin system? What was it all about? What did it add to the day? The whole idea was to give people something to fight for when there was nothing left at stake. So they may have lost the mission. You see, I mean, this was the kind of trade. It, it, it was all about playing the game. But if you could do this, just if you could play the narrative, then you'd be rewarded with the gold coin. So, for example, if you can escape off the table, you'd get a gold coin. And as you hear about in the other missions, if you can do something else, you'd get a gold coin. You take that back to your camp during the day pop them down to your Lord Commander or King and say, I managed to get this gold coin. Hopefully you buy you a pint. Lord Commander didn't buy me any pints. I don't <laughs> have to buy any pints. But anyway, oh, so the, the gold coins were in both camps and at the very, very final battle, you could actually hire troops to fight on your side for the final battle over and above your 30 points allowed per player. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fantastic. And, and one of the bits I took away from it was that a lot of sort of traditional war games, if I can call them traditional, have this aspect of objective play, where you play over one or more objectives and that decides the outcome of the fight. But really what you've done here is give players a reason to engage for the entire length of the game. So they may have, for instance, in the tally hole, they've maybe engaged in, in the middle of the field and decide, right, we're going to have a scrap. Uh, and try and win honour, you know, my, my right. game is going to fight yours, but at the same time, if you know you can't win that part of the mission, you can go, well, do you know what, there, there's something still to fight here for, I can, you know, I can chase off and get that gold, I can try and get some units off. Well, somebody, somebody somewhere needs to get to the fight at some point, I mean, that's the whole point of it, you, you've been, the barriers have been struck, so you must, you have, to, somebody needs to get across. You can have a fight and you can be honourable in your fight, but have you got anybody through? No, maybe, I don't know. So, I mean, it was an interesting mission for starting for folk off. They loved it. They loved it. Everybody loved it. Everybody was smiling. And I think it was a success in that regard. I, I mean, it's not a difficult rule system. Like you say, we had non-gamers playing. Um who were just first ever second war games, two people, and they liked it. We had folk from X-Wing, we had folk from 40k coming back, back to the hobby from 40k, from the grim dark future. And we had folk coming all the way down from the, you know, the historical mega games. You know, we had it all. And it was ace. It really worked that first game. It brought everybody together so they could focus on the next block of missions in the 
kind of I think it was in the afternoon. And it, it sounds fantastic because another takeaway was the fact that this system of gold coins that could be won across the day, it really helped tie all the missions together. So you have this first tally-ho mission that really introduces guys that are veteran gamers, guys that literally have never rolled a dice. That's right. Blast. And it's really given them a feel for the rules. And it's helped build that first mission. They feel like they've actually done something. You know, they've added something to their their team, you know, whether parliamentarian or royalist. Uh, so they've fought through. The guys have fought. The 16 generals have fought across the tally-ho mission, some taking away more gold than others. And then they've hit the grand muster for their team. Now, the muster we went into in good detail in episode one. Mm-hmm which is available online uh, on our CastBox channel, Dicing With History. But the actual muster table itself, Ian, how did it pan out on the day? How did it actually work? Well, I actually thought it was it was a gamble because everybody has to bring their toys and put them down on the table for everybody else to use. I mean, that's the risk. I mean, it, I, I don't have a problem with it, but other people wanted to bring and play with the toys they had, they had brought, which is fair enough. But the whole idea of the master table was that you could actually use that as a tool for your team. Because when we looked at the missions that will go on to later, you could actually pick your teammate, then pick the forces you needed for said teammate, and then go on to the mission. So, However, the way things people have the, the models based and, and they don't want to share out and everything looks cool and stuff like that. I mean, we could have we could have dished out honor for all this because you're doing stuff like that and everything else. But it just became a little bit of a for a first time attempt. It just became a little bit. It, it, time was running out because we'd spent a lot of time kind of having a laugh. So the time was running out, so we need to speed things up. So it just became a case of you take this, you take that, and you go there, which, to be honest, I think is pretty real. Get these, get that, and go and do that. So that's what happened. So, they, you know, it, it worked ace, I thought. But yeah. we can do it better next time. Yeah, that's, well, that's, that's the glory of what uh, we're trying to achieve, Ian, and what you guys uh, are trying to achieve is really this introduction of new concepts and new fun concepts that really add to the narrative of a, an event and make all the games seem like part of a, a bigger whole. Well, that's it, because not, not everybody has all the Razzmatazz units, you see. So you might be able to bring to the table, literally bring to the table, your what to you might seem like a pitiful little band of guys. However... Those pitiful little band of guys may be used elsewhere, and now you get you take those cavalry and go do this. So now you you brought something to the table, but you you you're getting to play with more than just what you brought. It's a team effort. The big old team has to be a team. Yeah, and I think it's a fantastic concept, and I'm looking forward to seeing it more at future events, which we'll touch on a little bit towards the end of the episode. But so muster table in, you've said went really well. It's great to hear. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it over for the day, uh, so this is this is all new to me too, uh, and I'm just picking it up off you tonight. Uh, but the feedback I've got from some of the guys was that the narrative missions themselves. So everybody's fought their tally ho mission. They now move on to the real meat and bones of the event, which was the narrative missions. 
of which there were four. Again, it was a doubles, uh, a doubles team process, uh, and these guys have picked, really from, from what I gather from the muster table, they've picked units that would be suit certain players better and would suit certain missions better. Uh, that was the theory, anyway. That was the that was a theory. Yeah, no good plan survives contact with the enemy and all that. But I think Ian, one of the things that you were really adamant on about from the start was really capturing the essence of the period. So English Civil War, and I think the missions really reflect that. So I'm going to let you give us a rumble through each of the four missions. Uh, so the first mission that I'd like to talk about was the Good Day for a Burning, which is actually a mission of your own design. Yes, that is, yeah, yeah, that's something, yeah, we have, now this is one thing that we had done a lot of playtesting on, um, simply because I just wanted to get it right, and I wanted to make sure that non-gamers, this is always my thing, I want non-gamers, non-gamers total, and non-historical gamers to have a good time. So for this one, we've got a, a big church in the middle of a six by four, kind of at an oblique angle, it makes no difference. And then we've got like eight bits of scenery just scattered terrain with, you know, like, I don't know. Which? Three smart sized bases. So we've got eight of them kind of scattered around. And the narrative is that either the Royalists have come or the parliamentarians have come, a church, a church is on fire, and the, the clergymen have taken all their gear and they've scattered it out into the surrounding countryside. And to represent that, we just have playing cards that are shuffled, placed face down, slid under each, each terrain piece. Now, and we have a couple under the church as well. Now, just everybody should be familiar-ish with the kind of Pike Wins Lament, Rebels and Patriots rule system, but everything goes on activation. So we have two sides, well, two sides, two teams. Now, the idea is here that you have to search for the loot. So you need to search for the loot. To do that, we, we made it simple so that you come up to a piece of terrain, you search it on a four-up, which is it's, it's normally quite difficult to do in activation, maybe if you're rubbish. But we figured these guys really want to find the gold. So on a four-up, they find the gold. And then they have the card, the playing card, placed underneath the unit. You can look at it if you want. That's what guys decided not to look, which was interesting. We all looked at it when we were playtesting this, but they decided not to. So they slid the the playing card underneath without looking. Now, so all these units that are carrying playing cards around the board, they must bank them for them to actually, for it to actually count to the final tally. And to bank them, they must leave off their own table edge. Okay, which is simple enough. But if you've got a whole pile of guys mucking around carrying cards all over the board and you haven't taken them off your table edge it doesn't count for the final time yeah it's not banked so what happened or, or what should happen <laughs> is everybody's supposed to get their cards off 
But as you know in the rules, if you fail an activation, you can't move, and then you're kind of stuck with a million cards in play when your opponents just swipe them off the table and bank them. Which worked really, really well, and everybody really enjoyed that game. And But we put another wee twist in, which means that you can bank and bank and bank and bank, but if you've only got number cards, then that's your tally. However, if you bank a face card, then that's rolled up for at the end of the game, both sides. So you could have eight of clubs through whatever, five hearts, whatever, and you could be thinking you're sitting pretty. All it takes is for him to get one face card through, then he gets to roll 3d6 on that. Yeah. But it could be three ones, but it could be three sixes. So it means that the game runs to the very, very last dice roll, which I thought was important for fun. And and, and the laughter from that table was phenomenal. Yeah, it sounded <laughs> fantastic. And uh, we actually have, uh, keep an eye on our YouTube channel, guys, Dicing with History, uh, where there will be actually a montage of video footage from the day uh, put up where you can check out the actual action uh, from that mission. So Ian, uh, sounds like a fantastic mission. Uh, without any further ado, we'll, we'll push on to the next mission, which was the Redoubt. Mm, the Redoubt is a, essentially a classic English Civil War trope, I suppose, uh, whereby the, the two forces, you four generals, and they're fighting over a Redoubt in the middle of the table. Yeah. Um, it was headed up, Mr. Mr. Andy Fraser, uh, one of our uh, co-hosts, he can't be here tonight, uh, looked after this mission. So the Redoubt is actually lifted straight from the Pikeman's Lament book. So it's the only one of the missions lifted from the book. But can you give us a rundown on the Redoubt, how it went? It seemed to go well. I, I, I mean... Um, I was a bit worried about it because I thought because it's a doubles, it was going to end up like a, a cluster um, F in the middle. But apparently it didn't do that. I, I honestly thought that it was just going to end up because you were going to have potentially 30 points in the middle. It's just going to be a mess, but it wasn't. Yeah, it, I, it, I'm it, I think, Ian, I'm, I'm right in saying from the mission pack that the gold in this mission was actually intrinsic to the redoubt so whoever won the redoubt won the gold so probably probably heightened those fears a little bit about a, a mass brawl in the middle of the table but sorry continue so ian mission number three was mr Ivan reeves shout out to Ivan. Uh, it was a ammo cart based mission uh, really interesting concept yeah this this one was tricky this was the trickiest to kind of figure out and it's still a work in progress this one the basic idea of this one is escorting off uh, munitions gear uh, supplies but the whole thing about this one was we were trying to make it so that it was a bit of jeopardy so on one side or the other it didn't make any difference 
you had three cards, and, and this was played on a big board. This is an eight by six board. This is two together. And you're going the six foot length, but you've got the eight foot deployment. Now, the idea was the person in control of the cart knew where the powder was and also knew where two gold coins were dispersed through the wagon train, which is what the mission's called. Now, to actually get the wagon, you needed to escort the wagons off the six-foot length to actually win the gold, the mission, and the honour. Um, yeah, which I know we chatted in around what one of the, I suppose, limitations we discussed was because you guys have crafted these missions, it's sometimes sometimes can be difficult to create your own mission because you're working within the strictures of the rules uh, yeah. and that can that can cause a bit of discord I suppose between what the idea you envisage is and if it actually works within the rule system so one of the worries was that maybe the carts weren't fast enough to actually mathematically make it off the table exactly I think what Ivan had envisaged was uh, Lieutenant Sharp or the English Civil War equivalent, jumping on the car and kind of whipping it and riding it off into the sunset and winning the day for one side or the other. It didn't happen like that because it's it's difficult, but you need to. We'll need to think about this one because we need to go back because what what, what happened in the mission actually in real life was no car got off. So you had to rely on the secondary mission, which is a shame because what you actually want to happen in a mission is for either a win or a loss, not the mud in the middle. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's one of, uh, something we've touched on quite a lot, Ian, in our own conversation is this concept of mission crafting for historical games. And it's going to be an entirely separate episode, but I suppose to touch on it, briefly in relevance to Ivan's mission. There's a wealth of fantastic historical historical battles, historical actions. But, but, that's, but that, that's what he wanted to achieve. He wanted somebody to capture a car of somebody else and ride it off. Yeah. But it just it just time in real lifetime, mind, in, in minutes and hours was always against him. I mean, that game you could play all day. But I think once we drill down into this, this I mean, there's loads of shizzle we could do with that. Loads of stuff. Coming back, as I say, we're going to touch, we're going to have an entirely separate episode, guys, on mission crafting, uh, which I think is huge because there's a fantastic wealth of stuff provided by the Osprey series, in particular, the Mersey Lex systems. There are some fantastic mission ideas, but... That idea of taking a historical battle concept, mission, action, and then you've got your idea, but you actually look at the rules. Does it work within the rules? And then right, uh, yeah. come back then to how can I adapt the mission? But we'll, we'll touch on that at a later date. Ian, um, so the, the gold at that point was really won and decided by whoever got something off the table at that point. Yeah, and whoever held the carts and things, it, it just, I think they just got out-timed and, and things, and it just, I mean, 
I mean, it's it's a work in progress for sure. I mean, that's still a mission that I think is absolutely brilliant. You can do that in any period of time. Carts, racing yeah. streets with gear. I mean, the gear amazing. I haven't spoke with Ivan himself. Fantastic mission idea. And one of the things we've been transparent about from day one is this is a, a journey for us, and it's about absolutely yeah. quite candid about the fact we'll make mistakes and go back to the drawing board and adapt and try and make it as immersive and enjoyable and achievable for the guys playing. That's right. That'll That's be. right. But uh, I've savoured the uh, the best, dare I say, for last, Ian, or the, ah. the, one, the one with most thought that went into it because this battle was actually based on a real historical battle that was fought 10 miles from your home. <laughs> 10 miles from the door, that's absolutely right. Yeah, the Battle of Philip Hawk, I suppose I'll introduce a little bit of historical context about the battle and then let you take it away. Is that because you're the baddies? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Scots, who, who better to discuss it? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of true. <laughs> Yeah, so essentially the Battle of Philip Hawk was um, Philip Hawk was a battlefield just outside of Selkirk in the Scottish borders. Uh, what you had in terms of uh, the historical context to it was that Montrose, uh, or the, the Marquis of Montrose, um, had sallied off into the town of Selkirk and left a camp at the battlefield of Philip Hawk. The Scots Covenanter forces actually took advantage um, and ambushed, should I say, from the north through the cover of fog. Uh, the fight itself turned out to be a total massacre for the Irish forces. And I think I'm right in saying, and I don't believe the Irish forces in Scotland recovered after that point in the war. Yeah, so the Battle of Philip Hawk, take us through it on the day, Ian. How did it, how did it look? How did it go? From what I can gather, the Irish... Oh, did you say about the Irish? Yeah. Hell of a lot of Irish involved that day. <laughs> yeah, I, they were camped Irish. outside Philip Hawk. Uh, well, outside Selkirk, because Montrose actually thought he could come down south and actually drum up support, literally drum up support for the Royalist cause. He arrived there, and he couldn't. He didn't get very many folk, and he thought he was confident because all the Covenanters were all still down south fighting. So what happened was... They came back and they found him. They found him at Selkirk. Um, so under the cover, there, there was an Irish camp there, which is true. Um, there was an Irish camp. They did camp. They they put up little fences. They were trying to. Because, I mean, that's an that's a telling thing as well because they put up a, a, a kind of rough defence, so they already knew. They were kind of stretched. Yeah, they, they knew they were in enemy territory, and it was just north of the River Ettrick, I believe. Ian was where the, the, the camp was located. It was was it actually was modelled on the battlefield on the day? That's you right. So the river on so, the southern edge of the board. Yep. So you 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 will be able to see this in the images. So we had a kind of kind of fence round a kind of rough camp to kind of indicate. The Irish and Montrose troops camp around the Ettrick. And then, so, but on the day, all the fog 
and everything when they, the Covenanters were... Well, they didn't actually even know anybody was coming. That was the kind of beauty of it. And I, that's one of the things, Ian. We, we actually we, we drummed up an original iteration of rules because it's not really covered in the, the system. So we, we drummed up this idea of a moving fog line using cotton wool. But after a play test, we discovered that it was much more immersive to use this sort of more abstract system of two scouting forces outside the camp that were wandering about the, the outskirts of the camp. And they had a chance to spot the, co the approaching Covenanter forces. And if they did, the sort of fog of war lifted and the battle began. But from what we discussed, one of the beautiful bits about the mission was that this, a smart Covenanter player could really approach quite close to the camp and be in an awesome position to attack before they were ever discovered. Yeah. Uh, but then there's this, this whole other element of the fact that historically, when the alarm was raised in the camp, Montrose himself came running from Selkirk to rally. That's right, that's right. He came, he came pelting down from Selkirk. He crossed the bridge over the Ettrick, tried to rally the troops, realised that the whole thing had just gone south, and then he tried to kind of, well, it wasn't south, but he tried to run west to a place called Peebles. However, we couldn't let the gamers let Montrose run in and then F off. So we needed to make him hang around. So that's when we had that kind of, he needed to come, alarms raised. Montrose hears about it in Selkirk. He gallops down, he crosses the Ettrick on over the Ettrick Bridge. Then he goes to the camp. He needs to find his gold coins, which is the gold coins that we're talking about before. Then he needs to exit the table. Therefore, kind of playing the narrative, kind of gently um, manipulating the players to involve themselves in the narrative and history, while at the same time having a good time. That was the dream. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, as you say, that the gold coins were ideal for that because once the alarm was raised, the, the mission itself then allowed Montrose and his retinue to enter the board. So you've got the River Ettrick on the southern edge of the board and he's got two points he can cross. So yeah. there was all sorts of tactical decisions to be made by the attacker. You know, do we cut off the bridge? Do we go balls deep, pardon the pun. Well, that was the difficult yeah. part, you see, because as the Covenanter player, we wanted to make sure that they were playing history and the narrative. And and so to in the playtest, we had a, a friend that you'll meet called Hovan who blocked the bridge. He just blooming blocked the bridge so Montrose couldn't even get to the camp. That was a playtest, though. <laughs> Ace playtest. And then Hovans just said, yeah, man, I'm just going to sit on the bridge and blow and put a cannon on the damn bridge. And, you know, he saw the mission. When I spelled it out to him, he saw the mission as, okay, it's simple. Prevent Montrose from getting to the camp. He can't get the gold. He can't leave. Therefore, I win, which is fine. But it's not really much of a narrative or a yarn. It's, it's just kind of like a fight on a bridge mission which isn't really the point. <laughs> we could easily do that. So 
we had to push it back and, and, and tweak it so that we needed Montrose to ride in, see that it's all goosed, then leave. Because that's what happened. And it did happen. It did happen in that mission they played. He did come in. He did wrestle up the camp. The Covenanters did come. They did, they did block loads, and they did do loads. But Montrose, on the day, did squeak away with yeah. all the gold. And therefore, history repeated itself once again. <laughs> yeah, Saul's Law, absolutely. And for anybody interested, guys, for our listeners, if you want access to any of the actual mission plans, uh, give us a shout. We're on dicingwithhistory at gmail.com. Just pop us an email, and we can actually forward you a copy of the mission plans we, we drummed up. Uh, so moving on, Ian, we're uh, moving on rapidly, I suppose. After the, the sort of narrative missions, the players, the generals remustered, as we've touched on earlier, before the big battle, which was the third and final battle of the day. That's right. Now, from what I gather, the big battle was actually a 24-foot-long table. Uh, being fought yes, as, yes, yeah, yeah, it was. Being fought as four separate engagements, but I'm going to let you give us a rundown of what those four engagements looked like and what it was all about. Okay, so Pikeman's Lament and Rebels and Patriots and all, all the kind of... Um, all those kind of games, just, you, you you can't have a multiplayer game because of the I go, you go, kind of, you fluff a roll, you can't re-roll kind of thing. So it's impossible to have I go, you go, you go, I go, I go, I go, way up the line, like a massive caterpillar. It's yeah, especially, especially with, I suppose, when you've got eight players aside, all it takes is one player to feel an activation roll and suddenly the entire eight players miss their go, essentially. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, the, and, and, and conversely as well, if that one player misses his go, he's got 16 other goals before he gets a go. So the way we decided to do it was just to have each 6x4 table, which are placed end-to-end, as Paul had said, plays individual games so we've got four tables end to end two tables in the middle are obviously the center tables and we've got two tables one table either side which are the flank tables so the idea was to try and make these tables integrate with one another without actually being able to cross over which is pretty hard to actually do Folk were still asking about that at the end of the day, too, saying, can I just go and shoot? No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, but I think, uh, Ian, I think the system you guys drummed up for this was, I, I thought it was fantastic that the flank tables influenced the centre tables. How did they do that? Well, that was the thing. We needed a way of integrating the tables without crossing over the join of the two tables so the way we thought about doing it and again this is a work in progress and i don't believe it's enough actually i I had a thin bit of red wool through the center of the table on each flank whoever had the most units over that line conferred a morale bonus to the adjoining center table 
And this was this was real time, which I thought was fantastic. In real time, so, aye. It, that was, I, I, I think that was the best bit. So the centre table could be running and running. Um, um, oh, yeah. Should possibly say that the centre tables were just going for a, a muckle ruck. Yeah, a, a proper a proper old school. A proper old fight there in the middle. A good old scrap. But if, if the flanks could push over this thin red line, then they would accrue a bonus to the adjoining centre table. I don't think that's enough now. Now that we've played it through, I think we could do more with that. But that's for the another time because I think it's I think it's a beautiful interaction Ian, and the fact that going forward with with future events that you can actually recreate this idea of a mass battle which we see at you know great Napoleonic games we see uh, various historical systems that have grand battles but using a, a single rule system where each side is each side but you've suddenly now got you know four separate games or more that are interacting with each other, and I think that's, that's, a whole, it's totally that's new. the whole point, aye. Totally new, but I, and this is the, the benefit of hindsight, and the exciting thing going forward is that we can have this inter, uh, interaction between adjoining tables that can really influence the flow of the battle. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, and, and the cool thing was, the cool thing, I think the best thing that we did on the whole weekend was how all the tables ran on their own turns. So it's just like, okay, your turn, our turn, each table went, come on, let's just play on. Like that. So, and it didn't matter what was happening next door. It's what was happening in front of you. I loved that. And yeah. that really worked. It was just it was just I don't think the flank tables could infer enough bonus to the centers, which yeah. is something we can change. I suppose we can touch on for for the guys out there that have actually played um, Pikeman's Cement. We really decided that the influence the flank would have would be to confer a morale bonus on the adjoining centre, yeah. which in hindsight, as you said, probably wasn't enough. But the no, beauty no. is, next time round, we can make it that that flank being one could really influence that centre table. But that's the thing. I mean, that's the thing we can talk about next time. Is is that kind of if if you, you you can over egg it, and then and then you can't take it back out, so we kind of erred on the on the kind of way of caution wee bit and just saying well just that you can just have this this time, and the next time we play it you might get someone else or someone else you know yeah every, everything's kind of fluid we can change everyone can change absolutely yeah listen it sounds like it was an absolutely fantastic day it was great. And, and, and can I just say thanks very much to everybody who came and suffered all all my nonsense after it all finished. It was brilliant. It well, was really brilliant. In the in traditional Scottish, Irish, and English fashion, I believe there was a a, a good howdy do after the event. <laughs> <laughs> there was. There yes. certainly was. And I tell you, you can timestamp this one as well because. Uh, there was a there was a great big old um, <clears throat> chat about the rise of Skywalker after I can tell you that for free. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, listen, Ian. One of the things, uh, and guys, thank you for the, the guys that have tuned in the cast book so far. It's been a great response. Um, we one of our particular listeners, Jim McCabe, who gives a, a shout out on Castbox, um, has asked what next, and I suppose that's the the question in people's minds. I suppose guys that are listening. 
what next? So Ian, what next? Uh, I think we have we, we have discussed this at great length, and we've actually decided that for for our listeners, um, I'm actually an AOS player and event organizer. I run Bastion Games uh, in Ireland. I had never touched historical games before Ian introduced me, and for me it was a terrifying prospect because traditionally historical games are viewed as this sort of niche veteran gamer systems, I suppose is the the easiest way to put it. So I was was terrified, to be quite candid, but we have really, and the ethos of what we're trying to do is about getting both existing gamers and new gamers into... Napoleonic wargaming. Yeah, mental in it. Yeah, absolutely. It, a, a mountain of a task, but we think we have came up with a, an idea which can coexist with the current established systems out there and encourage new players to delve into this amazing area of history because it is it's vast, it's a huge, it's one of the most well documented eras of historical <clears throat> that's right oh yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm lost for words but <clears throat> no no it's it's true it's true i mean i was i mean there's no there's no photographs of this time because it's just before that just yeah everything was, was happening every nation was kicking ass with each other yeah. well i think what we've tried to capture without going into too much of episode three we have managed to, we think, drum up an idea which will not only get new and existing gamers into Napoleonic Wargaming, but also encourage existing Napoleonic Wargamers to delve into what we're trying to do. So we're yeah, 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 yeah. They can, they can de. What's the word? What's the word? Decant some yeah. of the collections. Absolutely. Just it's about really bringing the. It's about bringing. Gamers together, or distill. They could distill. Yeah, distill. That's very appropriate. That's very appropriate. And we can try. Listen, if you have any inkling of interest in the the Napoleonic Wargaming, please give episode three a listen, which will be up very soon. Uh, In the interim, uh, give us a shout, guys. Any questions, any content you'd like covered, give us a shout on dicingwithhistory at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, uh, Dyson with History, Twitter at uh, DWH underscore historicals. And we also have a YouTube channel where footage of the ECW day will be up very soon. Ian, listen, thank you very much for joining me tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. And I look yeah, forward man. to you soon. Thanks very much. Till the next war. Yeah, till the next war, till the next era. <laughs> <laughs>